Well, good morning again. Let's uh, begin by looking at our text for today. We're in Matthew 13 to 16, Matthew chapter 5, sorry, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, but I want to start reading at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house." In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now as we begin this morning, brothers and sisters, I just want to tell you that I am concerned for the world I'm concerned for Canada and the United States right now. I see the way the world is thinking about things in this world, and it concerns me deeply. We have riots and looting and police officers being killed in the world, political agendas and and Marxist ideas and extreme socialist ideologies are taking away our freedoms. Sin is running rampant in every sector of society. I don't know if you watch the news at all, but if you, if you even just get a hint of those things, you see what's happening in the world. The government is overstepping its authority and imposing restrictions that are taking away our freedoms, even the freedom to worship. Wickedness is celebrated and righteousness seems to be almost non-existent. And all of those things in the world are just maybe what we would expect from the world. But you know what scares me the most of it all is that Christians aren't standing against the evil. Professing Christians, and I mean even some high-profile evangelical leaders, are remaining silent about many of these things. Take, for example, John MacArthur. He is the the pastor of really of Grace Advance, he's the, the leader of the church from which our church was birthed from, 
and we're a part of their ministry as well. If you've been following John MacArthur, you see that California has shut down churches with unrealistic regulations. And even though only one one hundredth of one percent of people in California have COVID, at least according to John MacArthur, one one hundredth of one percent of people have COVID, yet California has shut down the churches with unrealistic measures. For Grace Community Church, where MacArthur is the pastor to meet, um, in order for them to follow the government regulations, here's just a few things that they have to do right now. They have to take the temperature of every congregant as they come on campus. They have to meet outdoors. And uh, right now, I don't know if you know, but California is actually really hot right now outdoors. They have to be separate six feet from everyone that's not their family. They can only have one person in a bathroom at a time. I don't know if you've ever been to Grace Community Church, but the bathrooms, I can't imagine the lineup. Can you imagine the lineup if there was one person in the bathroom at a time? Uh, anyway, there's a, there's a huge list of demands on the church. And so Grace Community Church and John MacArthur have decided to obey the Lord who commands us to worship and to meet together rather than to obey the state of California. And I think that's the right move for them to make. And they put out a statement that Christ is the head of the church, not Caesar. And I want you to know to this morning as we get together that I'm in 100% agreement with that statement that Christ is the head of the church, not Caesar. And we're doing really the, the same things, although thankfully in Alberta, the regulations aren't as restrictive, and so we can meet kind of freely and legally the way we are now. The government has a, a sphere of authority in society, and that sphere of authority has been given to it by God, and we're to be subject to that authority, but that sphere of authority that the government has does not extend over the church. The government doesn't have the authority to tell the church of Jesus Christ how it is to worship. They can give recommendations, and in the case of a pandemic like we're supposedly in right now, they can give recommendations, but ultimately it's up to each local church to decide if and how it will carry out those recommendations. And so in the case of California, where the government has basically shut down the church, I believe Grace Community Church is doing the right thing. And even as I've been talking to some of the leaders there and some of the people, they know of no cases of COVID in that whole church of 7,000 people. They don't know of a single case. But what concerns me more, again, than the overreach of California and government agencies around the world is that many well-known pastors and leaders are remaining entirely silent about the whole thing. Other evangelical leaders have even come out to defend the government by arguing that churches can remain faithful without gathering. And most of the pastors who have preached at Shepherd's Conference, along with John MacArthur, they haven't said a word about the whole thing, at least not publicly. Now, usually, I just prefer, and I, I, I'm, I just prefer to ignore everything that's going on in the world. That's kind of how I just, I, and just preach the, the scriptures. I, I just, that's what I would rather do than be talking to you about what's going on in the world right now. 
But every once in a while, I think it's the right thing to do to address what's happening in the world. It, it's, it's really God's word that we need, not the latest controversy. And, and yet, at times, faithfulness requires taking a stand in certain areas. I, I, I heard some time ago, a long time ago, that faithfulness means standing firm in the place where the enemy is attacking. Right? Faithfulness is standing firm in the place where the enemy is attacking. And we can be faithful in every area of doctrine and hold to it ever so dogmatically. But if we aren't faithful in that one area where the truth of God is under attack, then we're not really being faithful in our generation. And I believe that a, a compromise is being made in the so-called evangelical world, and it's, it's exactly tied to what our Lord says in this text. And we can see the compromise in the example of John MacArthur, where so few seem to be willing to take a stand with him and to support his stand and, and teach on the, the realities of what, how we should work as a church in, in conjunction with the civil authority and the civil magistrates. And actually, if you've been following the, the media, the news a little bit the last little while, John has taken a number of stands on a number of issues in the past month, past month or two. And I don't want to take just a little bit of time this morning, actually a fair amount of time, and I want to just kind of talk to some of these things. I want to stand with John MacArthur and I believe stand with Scripture and maybe help you think about some of these things that are going on biblically. And then we'll get back to our text and maybe you'll see how all these things tie together. And after I kind of talk about some of these things from a biblical perspective a little bit, then I also want to come back and I want to tell you what I believe is the root of the compromise in, in, in all of these things that we talk about and why so many so-called Christian leaders are remaining silent. Now, a few weeks ago, John wrote an article against what is called critical race theory. Have you, have you guys, can you just put up your hand if you've heard of critical race theory? Just a few of you have kind of heard about it a little bit. Critical race theory. The article was called critical race theory, a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue. And I think John got that title from actually President Donald Trump. He said that as well. Critical race theory, a sickness that cannot be allowed to continue. Published September 9th, 2020. Now, racism is a sin, right? Racism is a sin of partiality based on a person's skin color or based on a person's ethnicity, And sometimes that partiality goes as far as hatred. Now, racism is a terrible and a horrible sin. But critical race theory changes the biblical definition of racism. Critical race theory sees racism as a part of the structure of Western society. And the only way, according to critical race theory, to remove the stain of racism is to overthrow the structures of society as we know it. In in other words, this is like a Marxist idea where the goal of this thing is to overthrow and destroy society. Critical race theory sees whiteness, and they use these kind of terms, whiteness and white privilege as a proof of their theory. And according to this theory, you are racist simply by being white and having white skin. 
Now, society has been so affected, according to these people, society has been so affected by what they call systemic racism and unconscious bias that the only way to correct it is to dismantle society as we know it. And according to critical race theory, being white means being racist. Whether there's any animosity in your heart towards people of another color or ethnicity, it doesn't matter. Just being white means you are racist, whether you know it or not. And critical race theory then explains why certain people have felt justified to loot and pillage in the recent protests. They're not merely uh, seeking... They're merely kind of following through on the logical consequences of critical race theory. They've adopted this ideology, and now they're going to follow through, and they're going to overthrow their their white oppressors and take back what they believe is rightfully theirs. And so they feel often entirely justified to do these evil actions, to burn and riot and loot. And this critical race theory then, as, as I, I hope that you can see just by this little brief explanation, is clearly racist itself. It teaches hatred, strife, jealousy, envy, anger. It creates hostility and factions and divisions. And all of those are works of the flesh, Galatians 5.20 20 and 21. Now, critical race theory, theory lies really behind another movement, that I want to make you aware of, and this is called Black Lives Matter. Now, Black Lives Matter has had a lot of publicity lately because of the, the death of a, a man named George Floyd, a black man killed by a white police officer. How many have heard of Black Lives Matter? Okay, a lot more even than critical race theory. Black Lives Matter. Now, I need to just say up front here that, that I have black friends in the Lord. And, and you know what? I don't even really think of them as black friends. They are just friends in the Lord. And the color of their skin happens to be black. It doesn't really make any difference. They're just brothers and sisters in the Lord. And a biblical point of view is that we are all descendants of Adam, regardless of our skin color. We, are, we might have different ethnicities, but we are all descendants of Adam. We are all part of the human race. But Black Lives Matter, the organization, as much as we might want to say Black Lives Matter and White Lives Matter and All Lives Matter to God, Black Lives Matter, the organization, is not really about helping black people. And you can go to their website and you can read their goals and you can read their, their what, what, I don't know, what we would call a statement of faith, their, their statement of what they believe and what they're all about. And their goal is to destroy the biblical definition of the family They want to promote ungodly views of sexuality in the world. Their goal is to overthrow the structures of society. And they will use whatever they can to accomplish those goals. And so they will use the death of black people to accomplish their goals when it suits them. For example, Black Lives Matter is pro-abortion. And so they support the murder of black babies in the womb. More black children are killed in abortion than any other ethnicity of people. And they're pro and and they fully support that. Recently in Chicago, a a black little girl, eight-year-old girl was shot in a weekend shooting in Chicago. I think there was 50 or 55 people killed that weekend. And Black Lives Matter said nothing about that. 
Why would they say nothing about one black life and something about the other black life? Well, it's because it doesn't help them to further their agenda of overthrowing society when the little black girl in Chicago dies. But when a, a police officer kills uh, a black man in the, in the line of duty, then the, that supports their rioting and they want to defund the police and riot and loot and overthrow society. And they justify all of that wickedness because of the, the, the injustice of this one man's death and, and other deaths. And so they're just really trying to accomplish their own agenda. And those are the black lives that they care about, the black lives that will help them accomplish their agenda. Now there's two black men who've done a really excellent job sharing and showing the corruption and the wickedness of Black Lives Matter, the organization. And... Uh, I don't know, have you guys heard of these guys? Have you seen Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker? Can you put up your hand if you've seen those guys? Those, if you want to know more about Black Lives Matter, I would recommend go and listen to Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker, and they will help you kind of think through that whole thing biblically. They, the, their podcast is called the Just Thinking Podcast, and they're, they're just, they're fantastic guys. Now, Here's, again, where I'm concerned, not, not so much with the, the worldly organizations that have, have taken on sinful ideologies. I fully expect the world to have sinful ideologies and, and to do sinful things. But what's more concerning for me is that evangelical seminaries who are going to train the next generation of pastors, they are adopting critical race theory and teaching it in their classes. For example, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where Al Mohler is the president, they have classes where critical race theory and those ideologies are taught. I've seen class notes where they teach on what white Southern Baptist churches should do, and they they talk about whiteness and white privilege, and, and they've adopted these critical race theory ideologies. And with critical race theory, you can never do enough. No matter what you do, as long as you are white, you will never be able to remove the stain of racism. No repentance, no, no turning from sin is ever enough to cleanse it. And so you're, they feel like they're always going to be dealing with this white, uh, privilege and, 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 and it's just so unbiblical. And so I, I want you to be aware of this. More than this, the, the Southern Baptists, um, the Southern Baptists, the largest denomination of evangelicals in North America, they recently voted on and accepted what they called Resolution 9. Resolution 9 identifies critical race theory as a, quote, useful, or uh, as a useful, quote, set of analytical tools that help explain how race has and continues to function in society. And so they're adopting this false, unbiblical ideology, and they're going to use it as a tool to help them interpret the world and to help them interpret even Scripture. Now, why are so many Christian ministers and Christian people adopting these unbiblical ideas? Why are, are, are those who know better not warning their people? Like you, you think about Al Mohler, you think this guy should know better. Why are they not doing anything about this? Why are those who have influence uh, not using their influence to warn other believers about the dangers of these false ideas? Now, obviously, I don't know 
the hearts of the pastors around the world. I I don't know what they're thinking or why they're doing what they're doing. Maybe some of them have been just doing what I prefer to do, to say focused on preaching the next text text of Scripture. But like I said, there, there comes a time when faithfulness to the truth requires us to stand against falsehood. There comes a time when faithfulness requires us to stand with those who are standing against falsehood. Now let me tell you what I think a huge part of the problem is. I think it is this. I think that there are too many of us who are concerned about what the world thinks of us. There's too many of us who are concerned about what the world thinks of us. We want the world to like us. We want the world to think that, that we're concerned about the very same things that they're concerned about. And maybe by somehow showing this solidarity with the world, we will draw the world in. Or to put it negatively, we don't want the world, and especially the intellectual world, we don't want the world to think that we're irrelevant. And somehow this idea that we must be well regarded in the world in order to reach the world has captured many of the evangelical elite and many people, just many Christian people. MacArthur said it this way in his article. He said, quote, the besetting sin of pragmatic, style-conscious evangelicals has always been that they shamelessly borrow fads and talking points from the unbelieving world. Today's evangelicals evidently don't believe Quote, the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God, 1 Corinthians 3.19. He says, virtually any theory, ideology, or amusement that captures the fancy of secular pop culture will be adopted, slightly adapted, perhaps cloaked in spiritual-sounding language, propped up with specious proof texts, and peddled as an issue that is vital for evangelicals to embrace. Because after all... We don't want to be perceived as totally irrelevant, end quote. That was, again, that was in his article, Critical Race Theory, A Sickness That Cannot Be Allowed to Continue. And this is why things like social justice and critical race theory and Black Lives Matter and the idea that the government can dictate our worship, all of these ideas are coming into the church. This, this idea of, of what people call woke Christianity, which is, which is just adopting these worldly ideologies. They, they've come into the church because the church wants to seem relevant to the world. And those who take a stand against these things then are left to do it alone because we don't want to seem like we're associating with those people who are against the things that the world is for. Now, why, again, am I saying all this? And, and for those who are visiting, I do not usually do this. You, you know, you guys who know me you know that I just usually preach verse by verse. But why am I saying all this? What does that have to do with this passage that I read at the beginning? You know, I'm starting here today because I think you need to know where I'm at on these things. I think as a church, you need to know where your pastor stands on these things. And I started to feel like if I just kept silent, I'm just in the same boat as all of these other so-called big pastors who have stayed silent. I've seen others remain silent and it was bothering me. And I realized I've never spoken to some of these things. Let me just say it then really clearly as I can. Social justice is not the gospel. 
And I signed the, the Dallas Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel, and you can go and look that up. Actually, I thought I signed it, and I went and looked last night. I didn't see my name on there, and so I went and signed it again, I guess, or whatever. But I, I signed the statement, the Dallas Statement on Social Justice and the Gospel. Let me say this. Critical race theory is not a useful hermeneutical tool, nor is it good for, for any good or godly purpose. Black Lives Matter is a Marxist, wicked organization that you should not support nor, nor like speak about that. We don't have to say Black Lives Matter. Nobody's saying Black Lives don't matter. Black people, white people, all people matter, and we gotta bring the gospel to all people. But Black Lives Matter, the organization, is a wicked thing. And Jesus Christ is the head of the church. And no matter where you stand as a local church, no matter how a local church decides to respond to the regulations that the government is giving, no matter how they decide to respond, every church needs to recognize and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the head of his church. Now, if you have questions about any of these things, I, I, I haven't said enough to really give you much to go on, but if you have any questions about any of these things, I would love to point you to some helpful resources that can help you see the biblical case and, and where these things come from. Now, the other reason that I'm starting here today with all of this is because Jesus tells us in our text what is the answer to the problem. When we want to be like the world to somehow win the world, we're actually giving up our effectiveness. When we try to please the world by adopting worldly ideas, we lose the very thing that we need to influence the world. Our usefulness in the world requires us to be utterly unlike the world. We need to be what we are in the world. And, and what I mean by that is what we need to be what we've seen in the Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 3 to 10, the Beatitudes have been describing for us what a Christian is, who a Christian is. The Beatitudes showed us who we are if we are truly disciples of Jesus Christ. We are people entirely different than the world. And the reason that we are blessed is because of our new nature, because we have been born again. And so according to Matthew 5, 3, we are the poor in spirit. And we are those who mourn. And we saw that that meant that we mourn over the sin and the sinfulness of the world. And we are the meek. That is, we are those who humbly submit to God and trust Him and are faithful to Him in this wicked world. And we allow Him to work out the results. And we are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're not as righteous as we would like to be, but we hunger and thirst for more and more to be like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we are the merciful. We are the pure in heart. We are the peacemakers. And because of these things, and because we are committed to those things, we are also the persecuted. We're persecuted because the world doesn't like people who are broken over sin and who mourn over it and who hate it. We're persecuted because the world doesn't like people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and who reject the world's phony versions of pseudo-righteousness. We're persecuted because we have pure hearts that are focused on God and on His glory. Because we'd rather please God than we would to please men. 
We are persecuted most of all because we are peacemakers, because we offer the world peace with God, the only way that peace with God can be had through the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through Him. And so who we are in this world results in some cases in us being persecuted. And we saw that last week in Matthew 5, 10 to 12. But now we see that we can't hide who we are. We must not try to modify who we are in order to avoid persecution. In fact, the very nature of a disciple of Christ is to shine light to this dark world. And if we aren't straightforward, if we aren't straightforward about who we are, we actually undermine our purpose in the world. A disciple of Christ has been transformed for the glory of God in this world, but if he or she covers that transformation or in some some way tries to make or mask that transformation, then his or her purpose in the world cannot be fulfilled. We are representatives of God in this world, and we must represent him no matter what the cost. And only then will we reach the, the world the way that God intended In other words, we won't reach the world by covering up what we are and what we believe. We will reach the world by by being who God made us to be and by declaring his truth, even if the world hates us for it. And so we warn them about error and false ideologies because that's who we are. And if we don't do that, we are in this absurd position of either not being who we are or not doing what we were intended to do. And that's what this passage is all about. We are are something as disciples of Christ and we need to be what we are or we are useless. Now we're going to look at this passage under three headings this morning. And first, there's, there's two illustrations And then we have the thing that those illustrations illustrate. And so there's salt and light, and then the call to let our light shine as disciples of Christ. And so first of all, we see the illustration of salt. Number one, the illustration of salt. Jesus says here in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now notice that this starts with a declaration by the Lord to his disciples. He declares what they are. He declares what they are. You are the salt. Now, of course, this is an illustration. They aren't literally salt. They are somehow like salt. And they are like salt in some way. And we'll get to what that means in a moment here. But but first, though, we need to know something else. In Greek, when we say, when we say you are, or he is, or they are, or I am, the words you and he, or they, or I, are built in to the verb. And so you don't need to add the subject unless you want to emphasize something. Now, maybe you're not following my grammar, but the, the Lord here emphasizes the word you. 
It's you. You are the salt. You are the salt. It's you. It's, it's not just you are salt. It's also you are the salt. And the emphasis on you and on the word the makes this have the sense of you and you only are the salt of the earth. There's no other salt except for you. There's no other salt except for you guys. And, and whatever it means to be the salt then is pretty significant because we are the salt of the earth. Now before we get into what that actually means, what does it mean to be salt, we, we just realize that we are this thing, but we need to look at the, the, the next bit of the text in verse 13. He says, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now we know, at least in North American culture, we know that salt cannot lose its saltiness. Sodium chloride does not lose its taste. You've never went and shucked some salt on your, on your, on your french fries and realized that that salt isn't salty. But in ancient Near East, where they got the sodium, where they got their salt, their, their quote, salt from the, the Dead Sea, they had a, a kind of salt that wasn't pure sodium chloride and that salt through humidity or other means could lose its saltiness. The, the salt content could leach out and it would leave behind an unsalty salt that was useless. It was, it was a, a salt that wasn't salty. And what is the point of having a salt that's not salty? When the salt lost its saltiness, what would you salt it with? It was, that is salt. What are you going to salt this unsalty salt with? You, you would just throw it away and you would have to start fresh with new salt. There's no way to salt unsalty salt. And so the essential characteristic about salt is that it salts things. And if it no longer salts, it's no longer salty, then to what purpose is it? It's useless. Did you catch that? The essential characteristic of salt is that it salts. And if it no longer salts, if it's no longer salty, then it's no good. It's useless. And so people would throw out that salt and they would be careful to throw it out on a path because if they threw it in a field, it would likely ruin the crop. And so they would throw it on a path and then it would be trampled under people's feet. Now the question is, what does it mean to be the salt of the earth. What does it mean that you are salt? And the problem is, is that there were so many uses of salt in the ancient world that that is a really, really tough question. There were so many uses and purposes for salt. Even if you examine through scripture, all the uses of salt, there's, there's so many. Davies and Allison, have a, a, a two-volume commentary. I don't have that commentary, but it's kind of a, a magisterial commentary on the book of Matthew. And they came up with 11 possible understandings of what it means to be salt in the world. Plus, I, I learned in my study this week that they missed at least one of those uses. And even in the Old Testament, salt was used ver variously. It was used as a preservative to prevent corruption, uh, you know, people didn't have freezers then, and so they would salt their meat to make it last a little bit longer. Apparently, salt was used in small quantities as a, a fertilizer. It was used as a flavor enhancer. Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each one. Salt was a, a flavor enhancer. 
It was used to to purify things. It it could symbolize purity because of its glistening white color. In 2 Kings 2.21, Elisha purified a spring of waters with salt. Salt also pictured a barren wasteland in many texts in the Old Testament. If you ever go to like a a desert scene, there's a a salty kind of desert and it was a barren wasteland and things wouldn't grow there. And there's tons of places in the Old Testament where it's used in that way. Lot's wife was turned into a pillar of salt, Genesis 19 verse 26. There was also such a thing as a covenant of salt, and so salt could be a symbol of loyalty and faithfulness, and there's scriptures to show that. Salt was also a a valuable, 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 valuable commodity. It was often used as currency. Roman soldiers were paid in salt, which is where that expression comes to be worth one's salt. And with all of these options, I think it's really difficult to decide on what Jesus particularly has in mind. And many great arguments and great explanations are, were made in the commentaries. Some of the commentaries said we shouldn't restrict ourselves simply to one view. And I think biblical arguments could be made for how we work as, in society as a preserving influence and, and how we restrain much sin and maybe even we restrain God's judgment because we are in the world and there's some righteous people in the world. That's the, the preservation view of salt. MacArthur had a, a great explanation of that. R.C. Sproul had a great explanation for how we are seasoning, we are, we're the seasoning of the world. He said, quote, Our Lord uses this metaphor for his disciples and by extension for us to show that they are to be people who add zest to the world. I, c- I can almost see R.C. explaining this zest to the world. We're to, to, to be the tang that makes life more delicious. Christians are not called to withdraw from the world, he says. We are not salt merely of the earth, but we are salt for the earth, that we may add this tasteful zest to life itself. Some Christians, he says, are perceived as sour pusses. They seem to be dour and and do not add joy or zest to life. Of all people, Christians should be the most filled with love for life, and we should have a contagious sense of the joy of living, end quote. And that sounds really good, and I think that's a biblical principle. But the question isn't if it's good or, or true, or even if it fits with the rest of Scripture. The question is, what did Jesus mean when he said this, and what did Matthew intend when he wrote this? And here's where I landed in my study this week. I don't think Jesus meant us to figure out the metaphor beyond this, You are salt, and if it's not salty, if the salt that you are is not salty, then it's worthless. In other words, the metaphor means that you are a particular substance, and that if you lose the traits of that particular substance, then you are nothing. You are worthless. Another way to say it might be this, that that, uh, that Jesus is saying, I just described your characteristics in verses 3 to 10. But if you don't retain those characteristics, then, then what are you? You would be like unsalty salt. And what would Jesus do with a believer who is missing the primary characteristics of a believer? If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian by definition, you have those character traits that we saw in verses 3 to 10. And if you are a believer that is missing those traits, if you don't have them, then what do we do? 
You're missing the very thing that makes you what you supposedly are. Right? Can you see that? that what, what, what Jesus is talking about here? He says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And so if you are a Christian without the essential characteristics of a Christian, then you are useless. Or we could say that your purpose for which you were designed is not being fulfilled. And we need to be careful because the Lord says about you, it or you are no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And that seems to be a picture of judgment. In other words, if you don't have the character traits of a Christian, then you are in danger of judgment. And there's nothing else that can make you have those characteristics because just being a Christian means that you will have those things. And that's how I think we should understand the illustration of salt. Now, secondly, there's the illustration of light. The illustration of light. And and this one is very similar. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now we begin here with the the same emphasis on the word you. It's you are the light. You, brothers and sisters, are salt and you are light. You are salt and you are light. You are the salt and you are the light. There is no other salt. There is no other light in this earth or in this world. There is none. You and you only are the salt and light of the world. And in the same way that salt is salt and it's, and its own, it's its own particular distinct substance, so light is its own thing. Light is light. Light, by definition, is the opposite of darkness. And light is used in Scripture primarily in two ways. First of all, light is used as a a symbol of moral purity, of holiness, of separation from sin or from darkness. Light refers to moral purity, and light refers to the illumination of the mind, the illumination of the mind, the removal of ignorance. And those two really go together because when God opens our minds to his truth, it leads to holiness of life. Light brings truth to the mind that transforms the heart and transforms the life. And that is what you are to the world. You are light. And this implies that the world is in darkness. Darkness, again, is a metaphor for ignorance and wickedness. The world doesn't know God, and the world isn't righteous. And those two things go together. The world claims to be enlightened, but it remains in darkness. And Martin Lloyd-Jones pointed out in his commentary how amazing it is to see that the world can describe in great detail men's problems, but they can never figure out the solution. 
You know, they can study our society and they can study what people do with incredible accuracy, but they can never or, or they cannot or they will not see that the problem is sin and that the answer is salvation in Jesus Christ. The world is in darkness and, and they will not find the light. They have no light. We are the light of the world. Without the Christian, the world will not find the light on their own. Nobody else knows the way or has the way of salvation. Only the Christian is the light of the world. And the amazing thing about this is that that Jesus and God are light. Throughout Scripture, throughout the Old Testament, Jesus and God are light. We already saw Matthew 4 and verse 16. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And that light was the light of Jesus Christ. Matthew is quoting Isaiah chapter 9 there. And Isaiah often spoke about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as the light. Isaiah 42, 6 says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. Talking to the Messiah here, Yahweh talking to the Messiah, he says, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. And so Jesus Christ is the light for the nations. Isaiah 49 verse 6 says, He, and that again is God or Yahweh speaking, He says, quote, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus Christ is the light of the world. In John 8 and verse 12, Jesus spoke saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. John 9, 5, as long as I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And so when Jesus here in our text says that we are the light of the world, this is truly an amazing responsibility and privilege. He works through us so that his light which alone can overcome the darkness of the world, shines through us. And He lives in us by the Holy Spirit to illumine us and to transform us so that God's light shines through us. Ephesians 5.8 says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Philippians 2.14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That it may, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 says, you, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And so brothers and sisters, we are the light of the world. And light really does one thing. Light lights. And if it lights darkness, it is light. Now Jesus applies this in a very similar way to the salt. Look at what he says there in verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. A city on a hill would be visible to all around, and there was no way to hide such a city. Especially at night when the the fires were lit and people's lamps were lit, the city on the hill would be visible. It could not be hidden. And then Jesus says, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now the reason that somebody would light a lamp would be to have light, right? You, you, you don't light a lamp and then cover it up. You, you light a lamp to give light to the house. You light a lamp to, to put it on a stand so that it lights up the whole house. And if you cover the lamp, you're undermining the whole purpose of lighting the lamp. Are you, are you getting this illustration here? So for, for one, you can't really hide light. The nature of light is visibility. It's like a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. But second, if you, if you could hide the light, if you, if you could hide who you are, that would be ridiculous because the purpose of having light or of lighting a candle is to light the whole house with the light of that candle. And so what good is light that doesn't light or what good is light that is hidden? And here's the connection then. What good is a disciple who doesn't shine? The very purpose of being a disciple is that your good works might be seen so that people would glorify God. What good is a disciple who who doesn't do good works that glorify God? What, What good is a disciple who isn't what he has been made to be by the grace of God? A disciple of Jesus Christ is intended for this very purpose, to glorify God by being who he made us to be. To glorify God as a disciple of Christ is the very purpose of being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Now some people will see such a one and they will persecute us and they will hate us, but others will see our good works and they'll give glory to our Father in heaven. And so that's number three then, the function of disciples. The function of disciples. And we see this in verse 16. Jesus says there, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, in the same way refers us back to the light illustration. Just like light shines and lamps are meant to light a house, so you, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have a purpose of being light to those in the darkness around you. We are light and we are salt. And now Jesus exhorts us to be what we are. Let your light shine. This is a command. We could translate it, your light must shine. It's not so much the idea of allowing your light to shine or of permitting your light to shine. There's really not a great way to translate this into English. It's a a third-person imperative. Now, in English, we only have second-person imperative. In, In English, we would say, shine your light. And it's the idea is, you shine your light. But, but here this is the third person. It's, it's shine it or, or let it shine. It, it, it's not, it's not you shine it. It's just a command to your light for it to shine. Now, I don't know if you could follow that grammar, but it's a command for the light to shine and, and to shine that light. Let, let that light shine. That light must shine. 
The light of you, the light of you, the light that you are, shine it before men. You are light and you are salt. Now Jesus says, shine. Don't hide it. Don't cover it. Don't lose what you are. Be what you are. And, and what are we? All those things that we've seen in the Beatitudes. We are distinctive people like salt. We're, we're different from every other substance. We're, we're our own unique person. We're our own unique people, disciples of Christ. And we are light. We expose darkness. And we do it graciously and we do it lovingly, but we don't apologize for who we are. And we try to influence men. We call the earth and we call the world to repentance. We tell them to turn from their sin. And we make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey Christ in every area of their lives. And the good works that we do, according to this text, is especially the character traits of a Christian and what we've seen in the Beatitudes. But it would also include the holiness of life that Jesus is going to call us to in the rest of this sermon. Now, these works are not to be done before men so that they will praise us. Jesus warned about that in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 1, where he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before others or before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And so we have to beware of, of practicing our righteousness before men in order to receive praise from them. Jesus warned us about that, but we are at the same time to be who we are and to do what we do as disciples of Christ and to let our light shine for the glory of God. And so we stand as a light in this darkness by the power of God to put the goodness and the greatness of God on display. And we don't try to please men, we try to please God. And if we do it rightly, this verse teaches us that by God's grace, some will see our light and they will turn from sin and they will give glory to our Father in heaven. They will, instead of persecuting us, they will turn and become worshipers of our great and awesome God when they see who we are as those transformed people who've been transformed by the grace of Christ. Well, let's pray then. Lord, we thank you this morning for this time that we've had together. We thank you that you have made us a peculiar people by your grace, that you have changed our nature in the new birth from the nature of all other people in the world, that you have transformed us from enemies of God into lovers of God, into worshipers of God. And we pray that your truth and the reality of what you've done in our lives would shine and that we would be peacemakers who shine your light in this world and bring the good news of the gospel to the world. We pray that you would help us to shine our light in the darkness and to stand for truth in the face of a wicked world that even threatens to persecute us. We pray that we would be faithful, that we would shine the light that you have given us and that we would reach people. And Lord, we pray that you would turn them from their sin and turn them into worshipers. We thank you that you even have the power to do this right now, that you have the power to do this through us in our weakness, and you have the power to do it through your word. And so we pray that you would do it, and we pray that you would make us stand as who we are, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We pray it. In Jesus' name.
Amen.